Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 40, Act 1, Russell Granite, Striving Toward Belonging, recorded February 19th, 2021. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA Podians. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also check out video episodes on our YouTube channel. Don't forget, if you're interested in some merch, we have a Teaching Artistry pod shop. So go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and get a tee. There are several different kinds, crewnecks, v-necks, long sleeve tees, or perhaps a tank top is your jam or a cozy hoodie. I get a lot of use out of the mugs and the tote bags. It is Women's History Month, history, um, and that also includes International Women's Day. And in an effort to uplift women of color on this podcast, which uh, has been a big thing, yeah, I would like to shout out the new New York City Department of Education Chancellor, Misha Ross Porter. She began her post this week making history as New York City's first black woman chancellor. What? Amazing. Misha, uh, as I'm studying Misha, I am learning that we have a lot in common. I'll tell you what they are. First, we are the same age. What? (laughs) Misha is a lifelong uh, New Yorker. I am too. Uh, She attended public schools in the system now that she is running. Uh, I also attended public school not in the system though. She grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, and is the daughter of a a New York City public school teacher. Uh, I grew up in Long Island, but also the daughter of a public school teacher, not in the system again, but in New York. She is a 20-year veteran of uh, New York City public schools. She joined uh, the Department of Education as a teacher uh, in a school that she helped to conceive called Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice. And after 18 years at the school, she then became the principal of that school. 
Um, Misha also spent three years as a superintendent of District uh, 11, which is um, the Pelham Park, East Chester, and Woodlawn neighborhoods of the Bronx. And then under Chancellor Carranza, she became executive superintendent, um, where she was in that, that was the last post that she was until now being chancellor. Um, what an exciting time. What an exciting time to be alive. Um, also hard, real hard. Um, but I am very much looking forward to learning more about Misha and learning more about her vision. I've seen her in a couple of interviews so far and she, what I, 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 she's, she, uh, I love her style. First of all, I love her hair. Um, not that that's a thing. That's a, that's not a thing, but I, I have a kinship with, uh, other women of color, black women who have, uh, have a liking for the, the lighter side of, of hair color. <laughs> so that's all I'm noting. But I really enjoy how, uh, in terms of her style, how real she is, how clear she is about, you know, there's one thing to have, have, been in education for a long time it's a whole other ball game when you've actually been in the system and working with within the system to be then leading that system so I'm excited to see how she uh shifts and grows and I'm excited to be able to partner with her and, and continue to work to uplift empower and engage young people in New York City all right y'all I am thrilled. This is the first episode that we recorded in 2021. And with this brand new interview, it is with my longtime colleague, Russell Granite. Russell is the president and CEO of the New 42. I've known Russell for over 17 years, but this is the first time that we have worked in the same institution together. Uh, he has been in this position since July of 2019. And as you might imagine, have experienced, et cetera, it's been a tough year. And really interesting for me is what is it like to lead in this time, especially when you are, you know, um, the president or an executive director. So when we sat down to chat, I, I thought it was, I, it was important to me that you all got a chance to get to know him the way I know him. But during the conversation, I actually realized that I still have a lot to learn about him and his journey. So in this act, we learn about Russell's childhood, his early career as a teaching artist, transitioning into working as an arts administrator, and his work as an arts education consultant. Here is Russell Granite, episode 40, act one, striving toward belonging. Russell! <laughs> Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Courtney. This is amazing. <laughs> um, I I think I said this to you that um, this is five years in the making. This this interview is that when we first talked about being interviewed. Well, this we are going. This is the fifth season, and so I think you were on my original list of folks that I wanted to interview. Um, so I asked you very early on while you were still at Lincoln Center Education. And uh, I think your schedule was such that it was challenging or something. And then, and then, you know, we blew into the wind. <laughs> um, but I remember actually talking to you about this at Jonathan and David's um, uh, baby shower or the welcome, the welcome Elior to the world party. 
The one that was up at Edie's? Mm-hmm. I do remember that. Yeah. So that was around the same time. It was shortly after I had invited you, I think, or I was about to invite you. I can't, I can't remember the exact timing. Well, I'm thrilled the day has come. Yeah, me too. I think it, I think timing it really is everything. <laughs> I, I have always believed that. Um, so just to give you a little background, this podcast um, celebrates artists and culture and equity. And um, yeah, I'm excited that I continue to learn while on this journey. Um, and so the podcast sort of evolves with me. Um, initially, I built this to, um, you know, to, to be another sort of space, a community, potentially up a community space for those who feel quite isolated or could feel quite isolated um, in arts and arts education. And um, what I, I liked originally was I really was trying to ce- celebrate teaching artists specifically. And I've been able to, over time, sort of broaden that out to artists who work in communities, so community artists, participatory artists, that kind of thing. And I've been speaking to people both locally and internationally, nationally and internationally. Um, and then more recently, as you know, I, I, we, the podcast launched um, a couple different video series that were looking at very specific topics. Like we've always been talking about inequities on this podcast in a variety of ways, you know, like advocating for teaching artists and e- pay equity and um, talking about the, the um, uh, racial segregation within the, the DOE, but not to the degree that I think those particular, uh, uh, the Keep Making Art and the We Can't Go Back series really like targetedly had those conversations. So I'm really working, you're my first interview to actually integrate the sort of like long form audio conversation and those video conversations into this podcast. So I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm excited to have it with you. Um, That was a lot to just say, you know, I'm excited and I'm also really excited to be much more explicit about equity, diversity and inclusion and justice um, conversations and to racism conversations and liberatory practices with you. So before we get into all that, (laughs) How are you? Like, how are you? How, are, how is your family doing? Because this has been um, quite a year. It has been quite a year. We're, a, we're doing great. I mean, it's, we know that we are fortunate to be able to isolate. That is not a given for everyone. And, and I acknowledge that and, and understand that. And I, you know, we are a close family. Um, we got a dog, you know, not during the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, which I think has helped enormously in it in just the family dynamic. Um, my uh, daughter, uh, who you know, is 12 and is going to school fully remote and it's going well. I think the school is doing a great job. You know, as a parent, you worry about what are the long-term consequences of isolation? You know, she sees her friends through a similar format to this, whether it's, you know, a Netflix sleepover or a Zoom call. Um, and she does see some kids on the weekends, but, you know, at a distance with a mask. Um, and so, you know, I wonder what that means for, for her long-term. Um, you know, David, my husband, uh, was in a show. It was the second night of previews at this amazing show uh, called Help by Claudia Ranking at The Shed, and they closed. You know, so, you know, it's, uh, there are, I, I think we will look back at this time and there'll be parts of this time together um, that we will miss. You know, we have dinner every night together. That has not happened in the history of my relationship, nor as a father. 
And I think there's something really special about having dinner every night together, having breakfast every day together. Occasionally we have lunch together. And it, you know, when I go to make a cup of tea and walk into the kitchen, I can hear sixth grade math or I can hear humanities and I can hear social studies. And every once in a while I'll you know, chime in and, and she's like, no, 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 no. So it's, um, I mean, who has, you know, what an amazing year, you know, there, there, you know, there's such despair over the last 12 months, these, these moments of joy, are so appreciated and welcome. Yeah, I feel like that you have to take those mo- take time to be able to recognize what some of the like the silly or small silver lining not linings can be in in this because it, it it's very easy to focus on on all the negatives. Um, and there are there are many, but um, I agree. With, I feel I feel the same. I, I live alone, but I have found a way. I think uh, well, one I you recognize like a little bit more about yourself, especially when you live alone, you learn a lot about yourself because I was prior to this, I was very like on the go and everything I built my world around being social. Right. So I barely ever spent a lot, any time here. I basically slept here basically. And I didn't really, I've been, I also have been in this neighborhood and in this building for 10 years, but barely knew anybody here and didn't really feel connected to the neighborhood itself with the exception of like, my uh, my like dry cleaner whose business had to close um like seriously like that's that's the 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 extent extent of it but this year on my neighborhood walks um I've, i've met and have more people within my neighborhood i have more friends within the building i have people that i caretake for in certain ways and vice versa that's caretake for me like those are really beautiful things that that wouldn't have come about in this um unless this happened yeah yeah i mean it's, it, it, during this time it's not unusual for our neighbor to call and say i'm going to the store do you need anything i'm doing this how are you doing do you have power do you not i mean it i think there's a level of kindness yes. that i hope continues post pandemic i me too me too and my um i was my neighbor <laughs> she's she lives next door and she is um she lives alone like me i feel like i'm going to be her someday but um she uh, calls me every other day just to say, how, how you doing? It's very sweet. And we, and our chats are very funny. And she ends it always with cheers, cheers, <laughs> cheers, bless you. <laughs> have, a, have a blessed day. It's so sweet. sweet. Um, yeah. Uh, so talk, talk to me about, um, I'd like to start back. You talked about kids and, and your daughter specifically, but I'm curious about you as a kid. Where did you grow up? Um, I'm really curious to know like what kind of kid you were. And I often ask this question about like, um, you know, how were arts a part of your life when you were growing up? Uh, I think I was generally a happy kid. Uh, we, uh, my parents uh, immigrated here my, on my father's side and my mother's side. It was not uncommon for Russian Jews to sort of flee their homeland and wind up in uh, the Bronx or uh, Washington Heights. So my my roots of my family are still there, uh, and they uh, started their their life here in the U.S. Uh, in in those in those communities, uh, which was really important to them and important to us as a family. Um, so I grew up. I'm the youngest of five children, but there's a big age difference between me and the next sibling. So I think it's like seven years and then they're all 11 months apart. And then I think it's like four, three or four years uh, between the the, the eldest and and the second. And for those who are the youngest and where there's an age difference, 
it is like growing up as a only child. You, know, you think that even though I come from a, a big, large, close family, that age difference, you just remember by the time uh, you know, I was born, you know, he was in second grade before he you know, really paid attention to me, he was in high school, right? So I, I very much, I feel like I was raised uh, as an only child. I was um, a kid who got into um, a fair amount of mischief, but I was so, it was so important for me to be liked by the teachers that I never got caught. So I was the, the, the kid in the front row um, being a good student, but was also responsible for all kinds of terror behind me. And so I liked being able to play both those parts. Um, not, you know, I wasn't anything terrible, but it, you know, it, it was often, I was often the ones my friends would say, I don't understand, you seem to get away with a lot. And I'm like, no, I just, you know, I was very um, friendly with the teachers and, and I enjoyed that role. Um, theater was um, a part of my life from the very, very beginning. I mean, it was, there was never a time I, I can remember where theater was not a part of who I, who I was and, and what I did, whether it was, you know, a theater program in school or an after school program or an arts camp, you know, I, I did all of it. And it's what I loved and it's what I knew. My parents were huge supporters of the arts. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a big lift. You know, I think they understood the importance of the arts. So I feel incredibly lucky and fortunate to have landed in a family that supported, you know, my, my really my needs, you know, I, I was not a, I was not a good tester. So there were aspects of school that I found very stressful. Um, I, I got very anxious around standardized tests because I did well in school, my test scores didn't match what I was doing in school. And it was really just, you know, and there's been lots of research about this. It was just the act of taking a timed test that I just didn't, some people, <clears throat> my eldest brother could take the SAT tomorrow and, and get a perfect score. He just is a brilliant test taker um, and, I, and I wasn't. So, you know, great highs around theater and, and, and being a part of the arts committee in schools, but yet there was a, definitely a side of, of being very uh, stressed by standardized testing. And um, I, I, I could tell you a whole bunch of stuff about my, my growing up. I mean, I also, had I had some sort of learning disability I don't know what it was but I remember being in um reading room like pulled out to go and read so I'm not 100% sure what if I had like well right now I know what kind of learner I am but I'm not sure what I was diagnosed with at the time does that make sense um so I and then what happened was like I remember being I, I was the kind of kid who was just happy to like get by I didn't have to work hard I was very happy to just like not be seen by a, a whole lot and it was hard because um I said this yesterday actually I I was one of two black people in my school that doesn't mean that there weren't people of color just not a lot of black people in my school um and uh uh yet all I wanted to do is be like super invisible <laughs> um and in fourth grade I remember I apparently was reading really well and they had pushed me up to the next level of reading. Um, and I asked the teacher to put me back in the other group <laughs> after a while. And she was like, I don't understand. And I was like, this feels like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> but you were advocating for yourself. Um, actually, my dad tells a story about like, he was trying to, he was, my dad was like a genius math teacher and he was trying to teach me math. He said that I was maybe like three or four and he was trying, like he kept trying to push and push. And I just sort of was like, 
Yeah, not now. Not now. I'm good. Like, really, like, this isn't, I'm not, and I wasn't angry and I wasn't upset. I was just sort of like, no. And, and for him, that was a big, that was a big, what, the way he talked about it was like, that was a reminder to me that I need to listen. You know, he, he was like, there's never, there was never a manual. I was like, I feel like they did have books out there, but, um, <laughs> he, 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 I think I taught him a lot. Like I was so different from him that the, like, I think he often was like, who are you? I don't understand like this, but I need to learn from, learn more about this. Yeah. So I'm just curious about, yeah, that, like your relationship with your parents, you said that the arts were a big part of, of your family life. How, like and engaging on your own, like, did you, ad- did you advocate or did they just put you in like theater camps? Did you, you know what I'm saying? Like how, wh- what was the chicken or the egg sort of situation? I think after um, five kids, it, it was a little bit, whatever Russell kind of like, it was, like, I, I certainly advocated and I knew what I liked, but you know, I, I think my mom was exhausted. <laughs> it was just, um, I mean, I, I it, it's a true story. My mom would go grocery shopping she would bring the groceries into the kitchen and then my siblings would all grab what they wanted and take it to their room. And so I was like four and I, what I had in my room were things like ketchup. I had all the condiments. I had like relish, I had had stuff that nobody wanted. My mom was just exhausted. Like there was no like putting the groceries away. People would just leave to their rooms with what they wanted. And since I was so little, I had I had, like I never had the cookies. I never had the cake. And this was a time when it was not, according to my mother, there was no such thing as fresh produce. So ah. everything was in cans. <laughs> it was it was it was it was crazy. I mean, it it, it, um, it I loved the energy, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, but yeah, I I think that I probably could have come home and asked for most anything, and they probably would have been like, "Does that mean you're out of the house for a while?" <laughs> like I think they were they were you know I have a great 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 loving mom who raised five kids, and she raised five kids on her own, oh. and that's not an easy feat. Mm, so a single mother, single mom. Wow, I didn't know that. That's a lot, Russell. Yeah, a lot. Because my by the time I was born, they were essentially separated. So I, I was uh, I was always called the bonus baby. My mom would always go, oh, my bonus baby. And then as I got older, I was like, wait a minute, bonus baby or like mistake? Like what, <laughs> what exactly? <laughs> How do you frame this? And then... Um, and then my siblings were like, no, it was called the Save the Marriage Baby. Um, so yeah, so they um, they were living apart shortly after I was born. My mom's going to be 96 and my dad would have been uh, 97. He passed away a few years ago. Um, there were of the generation where raising kids, this wasn't everybody of that generation, but largely um, fell to the mom. And so she, I mean, she raised us, and no doubt about it. Just a, just a give you a sense of my home life uh first of all when groceries were bought we were either with them and then we were made to bring the groceries in and and put them away uh, or uh you know they would come home and be like there are groceries in the in the car go get them so like it was always work like we were always doing something and engaged in that way and there would be no like taking food into our room are you kidding oh my god no um and then on top of that like for us um my mom was a stay-at-home mom when my sister was born. Prior to that, she worked. She worked all through college. 
Um, and she didn't meet my dad until after college. My, there was a seven year difference. My dad was younger or yeah, seven years difference. And, um, uh, he, he, he worked for all that time cause he, they moved to, to New York because he got a job as a teacher in a school district there. They moved to the town next door for Washington. And my mom had had, had her, my, my sister by that point. So um, I was born a few years later and they were trying and they wanted to have more, but they couldn't. Um, so I became this very precious baby and I was definitely babied for a very long time until probably until actually my, both my parents also like just uh, not the best marriage. They became like very good companions, but that they are Roman Catholic. So you just don't get divorced. Like there was just none of that. But my mom also had gotten, um, uh, I think it like while I was upper middle school, uh, upper elementary, my mom got a job where she was working in the, um, she got her master. Oh, maybe this is middle school. I can't remember, but she, she, when she got her master's, um, which was great. Like she, she had, she had gone back to work after I was in kindergarten and then decided she wanted to become a librarian, went to CW post to get her degree. When she got her degree, she had a couple different jobs and then she landed a job at a travel magazine as a, the librarian resource person there and loved it and loved like commuting in and out of the city. And then that business moved to Secaucus, New Jersey. So for about a year, she was commuting from Long Island all the way to Jersey. And that was a lot. So, and, and what I didn't know at the time at like 11 or 12 was that the marriage was really falling apart. Um, and so they made a decision that, um, based off of her job and the distance, she would have an apartment in the city closer to, uh, the Lincoln, Lincoln tunnel. Um, and she would come home on weekends. So that for me was a real pivotal moment as a kid where my mom is leaving my mom who like I adore and was like attached at the hip with like left me, not no, who, co- who cares about <laughs> like what's going on in your marriage? But like you left me. And so I was really angry at her. And then my dad was left. And, but the thing is, is that my dad, like my dad would say things like if, if it was possible, I would be happy to stay home, cook and clean and do all of those things. But that's just not the way, the way this is. So, um, how long did that go on for? That was for the rest of my life, pretty much. I mean, the rest of my childhood, at least, um, into high school. And I think, um, when I, when I, uh, was a senior in college, my mom, uh, they, they let her go. And so, but it, the timing actually worked out kind of nicely because my grandmother had passed away and my, and my aunt, one of her sisters had been diagnosed with breast cancer. So she had time to actually go be with her, her sister during that time. Um, so like, you know, like the universe does funny things like that. Um, but anyway, I was just trying to explain that, like, I feel like you and I have a lot of similarities in ways. We're both the youngest. We were the babies. I don't know if I was there saving any marriage, but I definitely was somebody who was a peacekeeper growing up because there was a lot of friction between the two of them and them and or my sister, and my uh, dad, you know, there was just a lot. So that humor that, that I have, like that was a lot of me, like, which is, I think a youngest child that's, you know, I think that's, fairly common with youngest, right? It's yeah. also just, you know, please, you know, I'm here. I know. Oh yeah. There's a lot of that. And so there's a lot of independence that came from that, that, that move. Cause she would take, she took care of everything. Yeah. And then it, I had to like learn how to do laundry and learn how to tie my shoes is what they used to say. Like you learn how to tie your shoes. Uh, but I think, you know, as much as I, that was a hard time really for me, the other thing that happened in that time was theater. I was in plays and I was in the drama club and those, those things that were tumultuous in my life 
were sort of solved. Salved? What's the, how do you say that? Like a salt, like a oh, a salve. Salve. Yeah, because I had this other sort of life that was happening. Um, and I just wonder about like kids now, like you talked about Sadie being, um, isolated and other kids being isolated in ways that that social, social component of life that the arts can do is, is, um, plus, plus whatever else, sports, et cetera, that that's so important, that piece is so important. Um, you know, and for me having the ability to like wake up, go outside and just be like, let's play was it was huge and the fact that that doesn't happen these days is really i find weird and hard and challenging and wasn't happening for a long time pre-pandemic as well i think the world of sending your kid i mean i remember we'd leave in the morning on our bikes and we'd come back you know at dinner and maybe they knew where we were or maybe they didn't know that doesn't i don't i don't know that that happens much today no pandemic or no pandemic. I think there's such concern over the safety of our children. So, you know, I would love to know, (laughs) I'm going to segue us a little bit into like, I realized that we didn't introduce, like, I didn't ask you a few questions such as how do you identify as an artist? Um, What is your role (laughs) in this field? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Uh, Well, I am currently um, the president and CEO of new 42, an extraordinary institution. Um, I have been in the arts education field since I graduated. Well, you know, that's, I was going to say since I graduated um, the, the, the educational theater program at NYU. But the reality is, I think I've been in this field for as long as I can remember. Because I think being an arts, you know, camp counselor, being an RA in college, um, working with young people, which I have always done, um, whether that was at the Jewish Community Center or, you know, wherever I had an opportunity, it was, I was always really passionate about how the arts do all kinds of things in addition to teaching the art form. Mm. And I don't, it, I think that's where I was a little bit of an odd kid because I sort of remember in high school, everyone talking about, you know, the love of theater and, and you know, what play they were gonna do and what actor. And I just, I remember at a very young age going, you know, it's gonna give you a strong handshake. And you're gonna be able to make eye contact. Like I would say crazy stuff to people. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I, for some reason, I always believed it did something else. That, that's where I think I was probably the odd kid in the, in the, in the drama camp because I, I was always interested in how it was helping me in other ways. And I don't, you know, I wish I could say, you know, quite honestly, the arts are important because the arts are important. And I believe that, you know, at my core, but I do think it helps other people understand why the arts are important when you say that they do other things. You know, I've always said, you know, a math teacher doesn't really have to say to someone math does something else. You know, a history teacher doesn't have to say history does something else. But oftentimes we as artists have to say that we do something else in order to be validated. And, um, and so I don't, I'm not, happy that we have to do that. But I always thought about that. You know, it was always a driver for me. And, and when I first started, so I started my career um, as a teaching artist with an organization called the Creative Arts Team, which at the time was housed as the educational theater company at New York University. And so um, I was a, a full-time teaching artist, which was rare back then. I think Lincoln Center had full-time teaching artists and, and, and creative arts team, maybe studio school, but largely they, you know, teaching artists were not full-time. And um, my first school was a school in the South Bronx and it was a special needs classroom. And I had not um, been in the school before. I had, I had no experience with kids with disabilities before. And, 
you know, at 23, maybe, um, I was just, um, I guess I shouldn't have been so surprised, but I guess I was somewhat sheltered as a kid of the total inequity of the school system in New York City. You know, I think of New York City as my, my home. I, you know, as much as, you know, I've traveled to lots of different places, I can't imagine living anywhere else, living anywhere else but New York City. But it was the inequity of the school system was just shocking to me. And, and I, I look back and think, well, you know, you shouldn't have been so shocked, but, you know, I was 23 and thinking about lots of other things, I guess. But uh, that really was a huge factor for an, an influencer of my, of my work. And, and what were, uh, generally, if you can estimate, what, were, what was the makeup in terms of race of the kids in that particular class, do you recall? They were, in, I would say, 99% black and brown kids. And these were, and there was such a, a line in the sand around schools that were high performing were largely either a, a diverse student body, although rarely, um, largely white kids, all had arts programs. You know, it was, you know, I, I remember those schools. And, and were they high performing because they had arts programs? Did they have arts programs because they had parents who were in a position to give financially to the school? I don't, I mean, I think there are multiple factors to when a school has a strong arts program, but there was, there was definitely, it was also uh, neighborhood based and, and within a neighborhood, it could be street based, you know, a school, it, you know, I, I know of schools where they're next to each other and one school is a phenomenal school and the other school um, is not. And so it's not even just community-based. It's sometimes so specific to a street and a block and a community within a community. And yeah, so I was, um, uh, I was really taken by the lack of um, just someone in power not understanding that something needed to be done about this. And it was a larger public school issue, but the arts somehow played a major part in that for me um, because it, that was the clear divide. You know, there were very few really low performing schools that had, you know, black and brown kids that had a strong arts program, like I just, that didn't exist. And so couldn't that be the lever for equalizing the schools? So it was, it was really profound. And I also think working with kids with disabilities was also something that I had no, that was never part of my thinking. And it's, I mean, also just, you know, to be totally honest, I didn't really have a vision board. It wasn't as if I thought, you know, 30 years from now, I'd be running a, a, a nonprofit arts organization, but I knew that I wanted to stay in the field. And so the, the work with kids with disabilities also brings a it's a leveler, you know, you, you walk into a classroom and you think, what are the resources that, that, that these kids have? You know, parents who, and I saw this, A, I saw a lot of um, very uh, disturbing behavior in schools around, I'd walk into a school and a principal would say to me, and, and I'm a huge advocate of principals and teachers and feel like that is God's work and it is a calling. I think the teachers out there um, who were who were just brilliant, and I I I, I am so awe, in awe of those teachers. But having said that, I also saw walking to schools and principals would say, "Why are you working? This is an expensive program. Why are you working with six kids? You should be working with thirty-two kids. Like why? why who assigned you to the special ed classes?" Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, these kids need it probably more than anyone. I mean, everybody needs it, but it it, it was that feeling of 
if you can say that openly to me, who you don't know, I've just walked in as a teaching artist, what are you saying in front of the kids? And what are you saying to the teachers? So, um, so I think the, the, a big influence for me was um, being in all the boroughs, seeing such a diversity of schools and of teaching and learning um, and uh, working with kids with disabilities. I think that, was, that had a huge impact on what um, my belief system is. And, and I think it's helped me through the, through my career, but it's also helped me through the pandemic because I've always believed at my core, what we do is so vitally important. And I, and it all goes back to those times because I saw kids really turn around in a 12 week residency and a six week residency, you know, they were heard and they were seen and they, it was heartbreaking sometimes to leave those kids um, because we were the part that we were the highlight of their day. And, um, and so that had huge impact on me. And continues to. Uh, I, I I love that. I, I there's so many threads. I'm I'm just writing down because I I want to just note a few things, but then I want to get back to your career your career track, um, around the inequities that we see systemically. Um, school budgets are based off of property taxes. So that neighborhood connection in the zone school is based off of what the the income levels or the the tax levels are happening in that particular neighborhood that I think systemically, obviously you couldn't have changed that at 23 and as, as a teaching artist, but like systemically that still, that still happens. And that I think is a huge disservice to all, all of our students. Um, the other thing that you were talking about around um, impact and the fact that, you know, these principals or teachers who, you know, seemingly cared for these kids were like, but I don't understand. I'm paying money for this and you're only working with six kids, 12 kids, et cetera. But the level of impact, what like the idea of more begets more, why can't more or any sort of the value of what you're getting have be measured in, um, the depth of the impact, like what those young people were getting out of working in the arts and, and being seen and being heard and creating and what you had talked about as a kid, like, you know, the, the benefits of, of being engaged, able to engage in the arts gets you the hand, you know, the ability to give eye contact. You know, I, I imagine that many of the kids in those particular self-contained classrooms did have challenges with eye contact or connecting in, in certain ways or finding ways to be able to communicate what they needed in any given moment. Right. So the arts do have these other things, but that, but that again, I'm, I'm just going to bring it sort of larger for a second about like how this larger um, systemic um, oppressive society that we have and the systems and the, and the protocols and procedures that we have set up based off of that have that kind of level of, of very specific individual or, or class-based yeah. um, challenges. I, I would add one thing to that. Mm. And that is, I think the parent associations factor into that as well, because if you're a parent, and there are a lot of middle-class families who have opted because they believe in public schools and invest in public schools, but invest in their child's public school. And they have the means to, I mean, there are, there are parent associations in New York City that raise $750,000, a million dollars a year that cover arts, sports, foreign language. If you're in a community where that's not possible, then what are those parents supposed to do? I mean, it, it is, I mean, I do think there are solutions it, it, but it is an enormous issue and continues to be. And, and this pandemic has, continues to highlight the inequities. Absolutely. But I think, I think that's the point is that if we're trying to rebuild and rethink in many ways, we have to be thinking systemically. And so I think 
being able to examine our experiences that sort of then you can knit, knit back up to what the systems that are allowing the, or have uh, had influence over those kinds of experiences that can help us rethink like what you were talking about in terms of parents. The reason why parents in, in neighborhoods that are, are low income can't do that fundraising is because they're working, they're tired and they commute, they live farther from where they, they work. Right. So they're commuting long hours, they're making less money and they're freaking tired. <laughs> and, and then on top of all that. So, so the idea of like, Andrew Yang talks about how poverty actually compounds, that it's hard to pull yourself out. But those folks who have means, who have the ability to fundraise for their kids' school, you know, why couldn't there be some sort of network that's set up that says, we're all going to do what we can, and then we're going to share in some way? I know that probably sounds a little bit more social. Well, that, was, that was proposed <laughs> at one point where uh, parent associations would cap uh, what the school was eligible for and anything above that would be put into a larger pot oh. and shared. So that was on the table at one point. And then there were parents who said, well, once we hit that cap, I'm not, you know, I'm, why I'm would I give if it's not going why? back to my but that, But the, I think that's a mind frame that we, we need to find a way to reset. We, and I mean that collectively, like community-based, we need to figure out how we change that. Um, um, so going into back into like <laughs> we have to change it, Russell. We have to do everything. Uh, <laughs> what, what was I thinking at twenty three? I didn't move fast enough. I know. Um, so so let's get into what, like you said. I I how could I have known that I was going to be you know an executive director, or president, CEO of a of a large institution? So I was curious, like where where did that shift happen? Because when I met you, which was I think in two thousand two, although now I'm thinking it was actually two thousand three, but uh, in that time, I was still in grad school. I, I met you at, when you were working at center for arts education and my memory goes as such, I believe Hollis Hedrick was the head or the interim maybe. And we were in a conference room and I was there with Phil Alexander, who was my, my director. I was associate, a program associate at Empire State Partnerships. And we were in the room with like people like Jane Reamer and um, some other researchers. I can't remember his name. And you were there. It was the first time I saw you and you were, you had like a lovely command of the room, but your tone your approach. I don't have a clue what you were talking about, but the w I was very much drawn to you because I was like fully intimidated by everybody else in that room. And I was also in, like intrigued by you, but I wasn't intimidated by you. I was more like, oh, like this is a person who seems to know what they're talking about. I want to know more, but I feel like they are very approachable. So anyway, that that's my m first memory of you. I'm happy that that's a good first memory. So my, so when did you get, like you were teaching arts a creative arts team, which I also auditioned for and did not get hired for by PT Dubs. Um, <laughs> Look at where you are now. Exactly, exactly. Uh, big mistake, but you know. Uh, um, so how did you jump from being a teaching artist into administration? So I was, um, uh, another uh, grad from the Ed Theater program was the director of education at the American Place Theater. And Wynne Hammond, the great Wynne Hammond was the artistic director and the founder of the American Place Theater that did extraordinary work for years of of you know, finding the voices that haven't been heard. American, American Place Theater is known for, in their history, is just um, uh, really uh, a, an unbelievable institution. And Wynne and Joseph Papp were really the architects of Off-Broadway. And so that really created the whole Off-Broadway movement. So they, um, this woman who was in the program with me was leaving the American Place Theater and she called me and said, they just got a big NEA grant to bring 
Literature to Life, which was this new program that they, a program that I think they had before, but it just received a, a lot of funding. So they were going to grow the program. And would I be interested? And I'll say, you know, being a full-time teaching artist, I wasn't balancing it with any anything else. So it wasn't most of the teaching. And remember, this was 30 years ago. So teaching artistry was a very different field than it is now. These were largely artists who, you know, it was a way to make money to keep their art form going. Largely the teaching artists I work with, and maybe over time they changed, but they were doing it really as a way, as a means to an end. It wasn't a necessarily a career choice. And, um, and the other thing about being a teaching artist back then, part of the agreement was you were going to be done by noon so you could have the rest of the day to audition. So most of the teaching artist gigs that were out there, unless it was an after-school program, was there were largely first thing in the morning through noon or one o'clock with the idea being that you had the rest of the day to be a working artist. And because I was a full-time teaching artist um, and I wasn't balancing it with anything else, you know, and I think every teaching artist out there will understand, I got exhausted really from the travel. Like it was just exhausting. I mean, I... I, I would look at the directions and I would, if I could be on a train for hours, I would be fine. When it would say I'd have to get off the train and look for a bus, I was like, I can't, just, I can't do, I can't do too much. Like I, I'll change trains. I'll stay on a train. Do not ask me to find a bus. Like that would always somehow put me over the edge. And, you know, and thankfully, you know, a lot of the arts organizations I work for were looking and identifying schools that needed and didn't have arts programs. So they oftentimes were not close to where, uh, you know, I was living or a subway stop. They were, you know, out in co-op city. They were, you know, places that were difficult to get to. Um, so I would have, I would have uh, kept it. I, I think there was also something about being a director of education where I would have had, as I understood the role, I would have had more say in the curriculum, you know, early days, I mean, what, what you and Lindsay have created at, at New Victory and New 42 was unheard of 30 years ago. I mean, you were either handed curriculum or you were told, you know, they're going to see a show and you have to prep them to see the show, or you're going to do something related to a, a subject matter in the school. So the idea that this position would have given me um, the freedom to think about what I was uh, writing and implementing in a school was just, it was just interesting to me. I liked the idea of, of having a little bit more say on what was happening in the classroom because I had strong opinions after five years working full-time and largely in District 75, which is the, the special ed district. Mm -hmm. So um, I also wanted to work with Wynn. Uh, he had had an amazing reputation. My husband, David, was a student of his. So I knew certainly of his reputation and who he was. And I missed the creative arts team, a phenomenal institution, but it's not a cultural institution. It's an arts organization. It's an arts education organization. So there was no link to a, a company or a professional, you know, there was no theater attached to it or an orchestra or a museum. And I, and I, I was interested in going to work to an organization where I love walking around, you know, as I'm sure you do, you know, I love walking around an empty theater. I like sitting in a theater when it's empty. I like being affiliated with an organization that has a, uh, an artistic arm. And so I think, you know, after five years doing the work, it was the, it was a, it, the opportunity came my way. I was fortunate enough to be offered it. And I stayed there for three years until I got a call. And um, Sharon Dunn, who is one of the great leaders of arts education in New York City, um, she was very, uh, uh, this was the same time something called Project Arts was being created. And it was sort of the birth of the Center for Arts Education, which Hollis Hedrick was the founding executive director of. And 
um, they were, it was interesting that the Center for Arts Education was originally established to only be around for five years. It was meant to be catalytic. So it was a huge, it was $36 million to be spent in five years to bring the arts back through partnerships with arts organizations like New 42, like Arts Connection and, and the like. Um, and, um, and, and so knowing that the organization was only supposed to be in existence for five years, I thought they were smart and they wanted to hire um, practitioners. So ostensibly my job was a program officer. I mean, I oversaw the grants um, in three of the five boroughs between arts organizations and schools. And if I worked at a traditional foundation, this money came from the Annenberg Foundation. If I had worked at the Annenberg Foundation, I would have been a program officer. But because this was a, uh, a catalytic movement, um, I was really in the mix with our grantees. And Hollis, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, he always said, um, our job is to make these partnerships work, not to go out and say like, gotcha, you know, not to go out with a clipboard and say, well, it says you're gonna work with four classes and now you're only working with three. He never believed that that was our role. Our role was to make it work. And so having th what the Center for Arts Education did for me, which was enormously helpful, is it opened up all the art forms. Because prior to that, you know, at NYU and at the American Place Theater, it was really only theater. And at the Center for Arts Education, it was dance, music, theater, and visual art. Um, and I stayed there for eight years. And it was during that time that I started to get really interested in something called action research. I was concerned, and still I'm concerned in some ways, that artists and teaching artists are not great about telling their story. They can tell good stories. They can oftentimes um, share sort of anecdotes about what happens in the classroom. But the real value of, of our work as artists, I often didn't ever... I just think it was deep enough or, or there was enough gravitas behind the telling of our story. And so what action research does is it is a very hands-on, and I know you know it, Courtney, that it's just a hands-on approach to, you know, what are you thinking about? You know, as an artist in the classroom, what are your questions about what you're doing? You know, is anything, does anything last? You know, I've, I've been here for six weeks. What's, what's left behind? You know, am I, am I teaching a skill? Is there something within that Where's skill? Where's the that stickiness, right? Yeah. So, so that was of interest to me um, in hoping to give artists the skills to talk about what they did. And then I was always interested in, in arts and disability. So I started a, a consulting firm called Arts Education Resource and the Center for Arts Education was my first client. And so I sort of out of the gate was um, very luckily, you know, very busy and grew that consulting firm and was very, very, very proud of that work and would have stayed. I, I, in my mind, I, I liked the diversity of client. I liked that I was able to travel. Um, we had just had Sadie. I, I was able to spend time, you know, I could create my hours and spend time with her. Um, and so I had every intention of, of staying in that. Thank you for listening to Episode 40, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Russell Granite, Striving Toward Belonging. Join us next time for Act 2. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.